Welcome to Off the Record on WKXL and in our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, and all major platforms. I'm Matt Robeson. We're recording this on Thursday morning, January 7. 24 hours ago, the political world was rocked by the unexpected Democratic wins in Georgia, which will significantly affect our government for the next two years. We thought that was sufficient reason to do an emergency show, and we did, with two great analysts talking about what a Democratic majority Senate meant. And then hours later, we saw the invasion of the Capitol by seditionist Trump supporters. It happened literally as those shows were going on the air and as we were preparing to release them as a podcast. So we held off on the podcast and like the rest of America watched in horror at what was unfolding. But of course, for me, as a former congressional staffer for a decade with many friends and former colleagues still in those buildings, and for Paul Hodes, with many former colleagues, members of Congress, and his own former employees in those buildings. It had a very personal quality. So we're doing another emergency show here this morning. And when we put it on the podcast, we'll put it back to back with the shows about Georgia and cover the full picture of what happened in a very significant 24 hours for America. So if you're listening there, you'll get analysis of both. But for now, Let's talk about the shocking events of January 6th, and let me welcome in my co-host and my former employer, Congressman Paul Hodes. Paul, before we get to the bigger picture of all the violence yesterday and what it means for our political system, for our standing in the world, the chilling effect on people fighting for democracy in other countries, and potentially the clear and present danger that Donald Trump poses in the remaining two weeks of his term. Most Americans and most of our listeners have never been inside the House chamber, never been in those Capitol complex buildings. And what TV distorts is just what a small, intimate, antique, and quite physically vulnerable space it is, a space that members of Congress literally had to barricade with pieces of furniture yesterday. So can you take our listeners inside what that experience inside the chamber is like and based on your experience, just how dangerous yesterday's situation was. Um, sure. You know, Matt, I'm 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 still I'm I'm frankly still in a state of personal shock over this. Um, when I turned on the television and saw what was happening, uh, I wept, um, and uh, I'm not I'm not. I'm not much of a weeper, but this felt uh, deeply personal to me um, because of my having worked there and uh, and um, what an important part of my life it was and remains. Um, I, I can let uh, let your our listeners in on a, a little secret. Uh, I've never been taken off the mailing list for the House uh, majority. Uh, I get all the, I get all the, um, the, the, advi the advisements that the, the House um, uh, Majority uh, Leader, Steny Hoyer's office now, issues about votes and about activity on the House floor. 
So I have stayed connected that way. I'm a former member of Congress, of course, and I've got friends, um, including friends uh, who are serving, who I texted while this these events were going on. So that the the Capitol complex is, as you say, a an antique building. Um, it is a beautiful building, um, but it is was designed at a time when people were smaller. Uh, the current capital was an expansion of what uh, the building, uh, uh, how the building existed at the time. It is a tourist mecca. In a way, it's a living museum of democracy that um, how that 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 hosts multitudes of Americans who want to to visit and participate uh, in this shrine to our democratic principles uh, that no man is above the law that we are a nation of laws not of men that uh, we honor the peaceful transition of power that uh, we are the world's leading democracy and so the 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 hallways are really narrow um, when there are large groups of people uh, who visit the capital uh, generally uh, you know they have to condense themselves into say a single or double file at most double file to to pass each other in the hallways when they're coming and going and when the house is in session you frequently are just walking with these large groups of tourists um uh through 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 the marble corridors the ceilings are very high the corridors are narrow and they are populated with door after door after door after door. Um, many of them look uh, exactly alike. Um, you know, we I used to joke that, um, of course, the Capitol is connected. The Capitol complex itself, the Capitol, is a complex. And it is a complex that also is served by many, many, by tunnels that connect all the adjoining office buildings from both the Senate and the House. Um, uh, there's a train that runs from uh, the House side to uh, to, um, uh, to 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 the Capitol uh, building. They, uh, there's a train that runs from the set, from the Senate side. So, in addition to these narrow hallways, this beautiful antique building with 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 frescoes and artwork and paintings and statues, um, uh, you have this maze of tunnels and the Capitol itself uh, has levels below levels, including uh, under the rotunda, the, the original Supreme Court chamber, a tiny little cavern, um, the crypt, the, 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 the secret places. This is, it is a place so imbued with our history as a democracy, so resonant. It, it, when you, it, it is a place of resonance and reverence. When you climb the marble steps from the first floor up to the floor of the house, the marble steps are worn away. And um, I'm sorry, I'm just 
For some reason, I'm very, I'm very emotional about this. The marble steps are worn away with the feet of not just the tourists and the Americans who visited, but all the, the great and small, small representatives and, and, and folks who work there who have made American history. So it's an extraordinary place. I had never been in the chamber uh, before I was elected. I'd never visited the house. And the first time you walk through the doors to the center aisle, it's stunning. Not because it's huge and magnificent, but, but because of the history, uh, which has now changed. This, this event changes the history of the place. It changes the history of our country. It changes perhaps the history of the world in ways we don't know yet. But you open those doors and you are walking down, you open the doors that the president of the United States walks through when he, or ultimately she, delivers the State of the Union. And to see it for the first time and to to have it be my place of business for the years that I was honored to serve New Hampshire. Um, as you walk down the center aisle, the center aisle literally is a, the aisle that we talk about when we talk about crossing the aisle, because on the right side sit the Republicans, on the left side, as you're walking down the center aisle toward the dais, uh, sit the Democrats. Um, with the antique chairs, basically. They're it's like an antique theater seating. Um, uh, there's a, the, and, and, and this, there's the speaker's pot, uh, podium where I presided uh, often during my years in Congress as the speaker pro tem for, for, for the sessions of Congress um, in front of the great American flat um, underneath the giant boards that serve uh, to tabulate the vote. So uh, there is, you know, there, there's some electronic additions, but there's this long curving rail behind the seating, a long curving rail where the, where generally staff um, will stand. Uh, spectators are not allowed. You cannot as um, an ordinary visitor come to the floor of the House or Senate. It takes, you, you can't, um, uh, there is, there are galleries, uh, rows of balconies up above where visitors uh, can, can sit, but the floor of the House is sacrosanct. It is, it is sacrosanct. There is no other word for it. It is the place where the business, where the business happens. And I, I don't say that to be elitist or to suggest that it's elitist, but but it's the place where the elected representatives of the people go to do the most important work of the people and the sense of history uh, and reverence for the place. Um, I think folks can hear it in my voice um, uh, is, is immense. The only thing I would add to really that... <laughs> very beautiful description of the physical space, which I think is very important for people to understand so that they can put in sort of a mental context and framework, the images they were seeing mostly on TV and the internet yesterday is 
it is a really small space. It is a surprisingly small space on the House side. It's even smaller on the Senate side. So as much as the image in people's minds may be of the Capitol Dome, which is immense, the the inner spaces of the Capitol are quite intimate. And the feeling of physical danger in a situation like this is quite profound. After 9-11 and prior to 9-11, there was an incident where two Capitol Police officers were killed by a gunman there were a whole series of measures put in place. And one of the things you go through as a new member of Congress, or for me as a staffer, is you're instructed by the Capitol Police uh, what to do in certain situations. There was a whole shelter in place system that was inaugurated during my time as a staffer and that was invoked yesterday, uh, was invoked a, a number of times when there were suspected people with guns. I, I wanna say gunmen, because it's usually men, let's be honest. And so what you do is you literally lock the doors. There's other, I don't want to get into too many details, but there's other minor protective measures. There's, there's some protective equipment that you have on hand in a house office, but it's not much. Those doors are not that big. They're not that strong. Um, and house offices are, you know, for members of Congress, are very small spaces. Staffers are, are piled on top of one another. Uh, so it can be very claustrophobic when you're in a shelter in place situation and you're getting communications from the Capitol Police. And as you very well described, it's such a maze in the Capitol complex that if you have hundreds of people roaming the halls, I mean, we would lock down for one suspected gunman. If you have hundreds of people with violent intent roaming the halls and you are locked in to a house office in a shelter in place situation, it is a scary situation. You are in a very small room with a bunch of other people and you have one door between you and who knows what. The only other thing that I would add to your description, Paul, is I have a personal proposal for the world. I would call on Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer uh, as the leaders of the House and Senate in two weeks, uh, Chuck will be, not to fix the damage. I don't think they should repair the windows. I don't think they should fix the overturned barricades. I think they should leave them where they were. If they haven't moved back the furniture that was used to barricade the doors of the house chamber, I think they should leave it in proximity to those doors. And I think every day, every member of Congress and every staffer and every visitor should see them as a monument for at least one year to what happened yesterday. But I want to move on slightly, just slightly, to another question for you. You... Yesterday morning in the news from Politico, uh, I want to read you uh, this uh, quote, violent threats ripple through the far right Internet forums ahead of protest. Uh, Washington Mayor Muriel Bowser has asked residents to stay away from downtown. Every city police officer will be on duty and the National Guard has been mobilized. And yet and yet those preparations were clearly either insufficient or there have been suggestions and I don't, you know, internet suggestions, but there's video that they may have been actively undone by Capitol Police officers. You've interacted in a far more profound way with the Capitol Police than most Americans. Do you have any reason to distrust what they did in this situation? It's a good question. Look, from my standpoint as a former member, let me paint this picture. 
in in the usual course. Um, there are um, essentially two uh, vehicle entrances uh, onto the Capitol Plaza, and the plaza in front of the of the Capitol, which with the plaza which faces the Supreme Court, now is the on top of the visitor center. There's been a large new visitor center uh, underneath the main plaza. And vehicles um, enter through a um, guard-housed, barricaded uh, entryway on either side of um, the Capitol. Um, uh, obviously, uh, every vehicle that enters, um, uh, at least in my experience, is screened, um, including um, metal detector screening and canine screening um, for the vehicles that enter. Um, even, even, even as a member of Congress, um, every vehicle um, uh, was screened. Um, Your dog just heard about canine screening. My dog heard about, my dog is doing our canine screening here, here at the house. He, he, screens, he screens everybody who walks by. Um, so those are, the ve those are the vehicle entrances. And, um, and there is a Capitol Police presence uh, at, at every entryway into uh, the building, um, along the the step on the steps, there are one. There was always one, maybe two, heavily armed Capitol policemen uh, at the top of the steps. Um, there were uh, obviously to get into the building. There's an airport type screening system, in which there were th ma uh, personed by three or four. Capitol uh, police officers at each uh, at each uh, entryway. So usually there are long lines of people to get uh, into into the building uh, as they are screened. It, it's 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 like getting on an airplane, um, uh, and uh, and and as a member of Congress, you form you actually you, you know you, there's a usual entrance that you use uh, when i was in the cap uh, cannon building and living uh, living on capitol hill there was always an, a particular entrance i used and you get friendly with the capitol police officers who uh, are assigned to the uh, entryway that you that you're using and so you end up with a, some kind of personal a personal relationship um, hello, how you doing? How's the family? I mean, you know, small talk, quick talk, but um, it's it's a it's a relationship. So, uh, in my experience, the Capitol Police are professional, polite, and um, uh, on on top on top on top of the general the general business of escorting people in and out, but there are not usually a huge number of Capitol uh, police present. It's not like an armed force or it hasn't, it hasn't been. I remember on uh, March 21, 2010, on the day of the vote for um, uh, the Affordable Care Act, the Capitol uh, was the site of another kind of mob. Uh, it was a huge flag waving, angry, uh, anti-healthcare mob that surrounded the Capitol. And so while the votes were going on for healthcare, there were a number of us standing on the balconies looking out over a sea of don't tread on me flags 
um, it was the Tea Party time, and there was a direct, I see a direct parallel, except that crowd didn't become violent, that crowd didn't um, uh, breach uh, the capital, didn't try to uh, invade, didn't try to occupy. Um, it was a different, it was a different mob for a different time. Um, the, it is beyond um, credulity to think about the fact that uh, this kind of mob action was foreseeable, that uh, the National Guard and other police forces should have, could have been uh, pre-deployed uh, at the Capitol and in other important federal sites. Uh, and it is very, very concerning because if this wasn't just a mob of Americans armed and planting pipe bombs, but was some other kind of terrorist action, not uh, necessarily just a domestic terrorist action, but another kind, the consequences for the government of this country would have been beyond our comprehension. This is beyond our, our comprehension. It's shocking, but not surprising. Uh, but clearly, there was some serious, serious failure. I'll only add to that that I started work on Capitol Hill in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 uh, at a time when there were anthrax attacks actively happening. And as a matter of fact, the first office I worked in was one of the four offices on the house side that actually had anthrax spores found in it. I lived four blocks away and on my walk to work in the morning, there were uniformed riot gear clad and rifle armed officers on every corner on my way, just as a show of presence, as a show of force, as a deterrent um, to show the level of security and to give people a, a sense of security. Clearly, there is a playbook for that kind of thing, a playbook that was not followed uh, in this case, I don't think there are enough facts for me to offer any comment on um, the what was done or not done, other than to say that I agree, there are serious questions. And if we've shown that kind of police presence before, we surely could have done better this time. This is Off the Record on WKXL. We'll take a quick break and be right back. We're back. It's Off the Record on WKXL in a special emergency episode where we are talking uh, between me, Matt Robeson, and Paul Hodes, former Congressman Paul Hodes, about the incidents of January 6th, the violent armed uh, insurrection that took place in the Capitol complex, on the House floor, in the office of the Speaker of the House of Representatives of the United States. And before the break, former Congressman Hodes was taking us through some of the some of the experience of being in that complex, of being on the House floor that most Americans don't really see and, and can't really get a sense of just from images on TV, the internet, and uh, still photos. So I want to turn the conversation a little bit to some of the broader implications of what happened yesterday, what happened at 3 a.m., when the vote for President-elect Biden was finally certified, some of the fallout within the White House and more broadly. And I guess I wanna pose the broad question, Paul, are we somewhat lost 
politically in this country to a degree beyond which we have even explored previously, having seen the fatal consequences of lying to the public about the November election, still in the middle of the night into the morning, eight Republican senators, and I, I can't emphasize this strongly enough, the majority of House Republicans still voted to block Joe Biden's victory. And a SNAP YouGov poll finds that 45% of Republicans who said they were aware of yesterday's events supported the storming of the Capitol. Now, I could paint a better picture of that. I could point out that four White House staffers resigned in the midst of events yesterday. Several Republican senators changed their minds about objecting to the outcome of the election in the course of events. And condemnations have come pouring in from the Republican side against President Trump. But has the situation become too far gone, Paul? 121 uh, Republican members of the House of Representatives voted against certification, along with the eight senators. Um, this is clearly, in my view, a crisis which has come to a head and is actually, as we are, as we're talking, Matt, this is a continuing crisis. And it's a continuing crisis because uh, President Trump has two weeks left as president of the United States, he is still in office. Some staffers have resigned, but we are still facing the continuing crisis of an insurrectionist, white supremacist, um, uh, perhaps mentally incapacitated uh, president who is uh, still got the nuclear football, the nuclear suitcase with him who is still commander in chief of our military, uh, who is still um, uh, uh, ruling with his authoritarian bent and issuing orders um, beyond simply inciting violence with, from his followers, but issuing orders that are continuing to undermine the functioning of our government. He installed hacks in all the agencies which might otherwise have come to the aid of the Capitol Police or been de deployed, um, including uh, defense, national intelligence, homeland security, you name it. Um, and so this is a continuing crisis. I have called uh, and my former Democratic colleagues in the judiciary, including our guest, Steve Cohen, um, who has been a guest with us on, on, on Off the Record and spoke on MSNBC um, uh, or last night or early this morning, um, have written a letter uh, to uh, Vice President Pence calling on him to invoke the 25th Amendment. There is a provision in the 25th Amendment that, that has only been used uh, heretofore for minor medical uh, emergencies or minor medical procedures when the president of the United States is incapacitated, say, by reason of having a surgical procedure, which requires that there be an, an anesthetics and he's out of action, um, the vice president has, has, has taken over in, in a few instances. This is very different. Um, the evidence, you know, I mean, one of the, com the one of the MSNBC reporters standing outside the White House said that he had spoken to a very, very close advisor to the president who said to this, to the reporter, the president is out of his mind. 
and the evidence we have, the unhinged ranting, the tweets, um, and the commission of, of the, the crime of sedition by this president um, has propelled this nation into what I think is a constitutional crisis that we have not faced before. Uh, just the fact that the 25th Amendment is being discussed at the highest levels and in public and on, on uh, the talk shows uh, is evidence of the depth of the constitutional crisis we're in. Um, there are, uh, or in my view, should be articles of impeachment immediately drawn up. It should be the business of the House um, immediately to reconvene and consider articles of impeachment. Um, uh, wherever it goes, uh, it is, I think, an, an important step. I believe that the Department of Justice, as its first priorities, should, one, investigate, arrest, and prosecute those who um, were part of the violent insurrection. Uh, two, um, investigate and make arrests and prosecute uh, any um, co-conspirators. Um, of this violent insurrection. If there was compromise in terms of either elected officials, appointed officials, or law enforcement um, who uh, were active conspirators in an insurrection like this, that needs to be investigated and prosecuted. And finally, there needs to be an investigation, uh, and in my judgment, prosecution of any other high-level officials who may have actively participated. This is serious, serious business. It, I do not believe that justice and healing are incompatible. Now that said, I know that we are in a new era of chaos. Um, I saw it coming many, many years ago, I'm sorry to say, and, and it is upon us. Uh, I thought it would frankly be an era of chaos around the world. Uh, the, between the pandemic we're experiencing and the uh, viral infection of uh, alternative facts that has been propagated by Fox News, uh, enabled by elected representatives and led by this mad king, um, we are really in a bad way as a country. The fact that 45% of Republicans uh, support or exceed or, or, or do not condemn the violent takeover of the, our capital uh, is indicative of the depth of the issues we face. At the same time, I think nothing but perseverance, strength, and accountability will do to begin the healing because you can't heal this country without accountability for what has happened. And I think too many people for too long have had their heads in the sand about President Trump and his enablers. Speaking of people who have had their heads in the sand, there was quite a stark break on the Senate floor yesterday from Senate Republican leader and soon to be former majority leader, Mitch McConnell, who said that democracy would enter a death spiral if his Republican colleagues succeeded in their attempt to overturn the election. In order to forestall a death spiral, President-elect Joe Biden spoke rather eloquently yesterday uh, about not only calling on Donald Trump to more forcefully condemn and, and quell the violence, which he did not do, but also 
about the need to move forward and, as you say, heal. What can Joe Biden and even, yes, people like Mitch McConnell, Mitt Romney, people who have shown both Democrats and Republicans that they are now ready to reject what Donald Trump has offered this country over the last five years, what can our leaders do substantively and constructively to get us back and reestablish our democratic norms and traditions after this horrifying break from them that we saw yesterday? This, um, this cannot be done as a partisan exercise. It will not succeed as a partisan exercise. The Republican Party has lost its way. Um, I say this objectively. Um, uh, you, 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 uh, you say I, I, objectively they've lost their way. And um, it will take Republicans, I think, uh, working with uh, Democrats of good conscience to uh, begin this process. Um, they're those Republicans of conscience who place statesmanship and country above party and self must now, and we've been talking about this for months and months and years, Matt. We've now been, uh, now that the evidence is in that the Mad King fomented a violent insurrection, um, it was, it, it frankly is a shock, but not surprising, that still 121 members of Congress and eight senators voted against certification. Those Republicans in positions of power, from talking heads and pundits to elected representatives, such as Mitt Romney, um, uh, have, a, have a tough job to, uh, and it may be that um, there's a new party necessary or a new coalition necessary um, in the House and Senate. And it may be that, let's say, Republicans of conscience who understand the need to, to um, deal with this incident, deal with the reality of what they have allowed to happen in the name of their grand old party, in the name of the party of Lincoln, they must, they must step up. They must step up as patriots um, and uh, do what they can to take charge, to reject the policies of violence and lies, because I don't think it can be done by Democrats alone. I have, I went to grad school with a, a lot of friends and colleagues who intended to enter public service in a variety of ways. And many of them subsequently did in positions that required federal background checks. Now, I don't know if our listeners have ever been part of a federal background check process, but there's a moment you're visited by uh, an, a federal agent who interviews you about the candidate for the federal position. And among the questions that you are asked is, has so-and-so, the person for whom you're serving as a reference, has so-and-so ever attempted to foment insurrection against the United States government? 
And we all always used to laugh about that. It's such an obvious leading question. And has there ever in the history of these background checks been someone who said, yes, my friend so-and-so <laughs> has tried to foment insurrection? And it just struck me as you were talking there, Paul, that we now have a sitting US president who cannot pass a background check, a standard background check for a position that requires some kind of a clearance in the federal government. It's really interesting talking about the future of can we assemble a, a centrist coalition, a working coalition uh, in this country, which was clearly always part of the vision of President-elect Biden as part of his campaign, healing, uh, returning to some sense of, of, of working government across Republicans and Democrats. My own personal sense of this, and I'd, I'd really like to get your reaction to it, is there's been a lot of discussion in the Middle East on the part of Israel about how in trying to work with the Palestinian Authority government, they needed to have a partner for peace. And so they have tried to prop up moderate elements in the Palestinian government, and they've tried to sideline violent Hamas elements. It strikes me that perhaps we've entered a moment for Democrats trying to work with the Republican Party where you've got the majority of House Republicans who still in the face of everything that they experienced yesterday voted against accepting the results of the election. And perhaps that is a group that is not a partner for peace and that you cannot work with. And I say that as a very committed centrist in my life and career. On the other hand, there has been much discussion in recent months about the need for a truth and reconciliation approach in the new administration to try and go over what happened during the Trump years. And I would propose, and Paul, tell me what you think of this, that the key in that kind of a process modeled on what happened in South Africa during the uh, transition from the apartheid government to the Mandela government, the key to that is reconciliation. If you are going to sideline people like those 121, 126 House Republicans, you have to offer not just a door number one of condemnation, but a door number two of reconciliation. There has to be a path forward for Republicans who may disagree with you, but they have to, they have to be sort of reaccepted. They need to be partners that Democrats can work with. And I think it takes active engagement. There's a responsibility on the side of Democrats as well if they want to help their partners in the Republican Party move past where we've landed. Paul, what's your reaction to that? Well, we're not South Africa. And um, uh, there is still a huge amount of denial in this country. We are, we're, we're, we're all in a state of shock, but, but there is real denial. Uh, among um, among many of our fellow citizens. I think there would have to be pressure from uh, citizens. I think there would have to be internal pressure, um, uh, an agreement among re uh, Republicans of conscience for such a commission of reconciliation to have any any chance. Um, the history of commissions in the United States is, uh, has been, I'd say, mixed at best. You know, I mean, lots of suspicion about the way 
uh, the politics of commissions worked and the way uh, the results happened and uh, whether or not they were true and accurate. This would be very, very different. The idea that we have to discuss a reconciliation commission for the United States in the wake of the four years that we have just suffered through is just is is beyond the normal comprehension of uh, any of us who've grown up in in this in this country. Um, I, I'm just not I'm not sure I'm not sure it could work. Um, uh, it's it's certainly worth thinking about, but I I would say this that. I don't think that justice and accountability are incompatible with the idea of reconciliation. I think that reconciliation cannot happen unless the majority of Americans uh, see uh, justice done, accountability, and truth prevail. Um, so I think that's the first order, the first order of business. There have been crimes committed. There have been crimes committed by the president of the United States, uh, by uh, perhaps uh, co-conspirators, perhaps by enablers, uh, right down to the grassroots of the seditionists who um, who invaded the Capitol. Uh, I, I, I'm, I mean, I'm a former prosecutor and uh, I want to see justice done. You know, I don't want to be rosy-eyed at all about a moment like this, but I wanted to ask you about healing our standing in the world because it was somewhat jarring to see expressions of sympathy and horror flood in from countries around the world, countries who do not have a firm democratic tradition like Turkey expressing their sympathies and condolences to us. And I'm curious about your perception of our ability to restore that kind of standing and whether, and this is where I'm in danger of being a little rosy-eyed, whether maybe there's an opportunity in this. You know, sometimes uh, the way you come back from, uh, from an incident like this, from, from an episode that is uncharacteristic uh, of, of one's country, of one's life. Maybe that, sometimes that's an object lesson. Sometimes it's a, a lesson in resiliency, that things don't always go well, but we have a self-healing capability in the country. So in the two minutes we have left, do you think that there are real prospects for that? That there is, there's maybe a silver lining and an upside in the way we view ourselves and the way we're viewed around the world in if we are able to navigate the next six months to a year and show our capacity for self-healing. So uh, earlier on in the show, I talked about uh, what some of the priorities for the Department of Justice should be. Um, I'm not sure that I listed as a priority then that one of the first orders of the Department of Justice should be an all-out effort to uh, arrest and prosecute um, for crimes uh, uh, white supremacists, and to reinvigorate the um, problem we have in this country with domestic terror, because that's what we suffered. This was an incident of domestic terror. It is. Um, it, it should be met with uh, the full uh, thrust of the federal government. It's going to be important for the country and the world to see that this is not benign. This is a cancer, and it needs to be cut out. 
and it needs to have surgery and it needs to happen now. And the other steps towards justice I, I talked about and real self-reflection in an open, transparent, and honest way are going to be important for the world to see. Um, ultimately, it is the policies that uh, the Democrats, who now will control the levers of power and act, are standing just... in the world. It is the policies that the Democrats who now control the levers of government, uh, and that, uh, those policies will help the world see us. It will be a help to have a President Biden and not a President Trump. It will be a help uh, to move forward to help the American people. It will be important for us to be honest about what happened, what the state of our country is, and to make sure that our values and our principles as Americans are what uh, lead us now. The world needs us. The world needs us back, and we will come back. That'll be the last word. On behalf of former Congressman Paul Hodes, I'm Matt Robeson on WKXL. Thanks so much for being with us.